Welcome, Giggle Water Gang. This is Historical AF. I'm Keena. <laughs> My name is Nash, and I'm from the podcast You Totally Made That Up. We are two history podcasts bringing you the weird and random historical nuggets <laughs> you never knew you needed in your ear holes. I am so excited you're joining me for Outlaws and or Criminals Part 3. Part 3. Third time's going to be the charm. Uh, the other two were great, though. So, I mean, I'm following up some tough acts, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, definitely last but not least. We got some good ones. I'm very excited for yours. <laughs> it's a ride. It's, oh boy, is it a ride. <laughs> Man, yeah, the Wild West is a trip. So, tell everybody about your podcast. It is... The mo- oh, first and foremost, everyone, please excuse my diction. I have been having a series of dental surgeries like oh, no. every, oh, listen, like every other month. And I'm not even kidding. <laughs> so if I hit, I know that I do. It's not an if. I hit certain letters oddly, like S, mm-hmm. which you just heard, and F and V. So I'm, and I'm having wine. It could be that the same result, we'd have gotten to the same result anyway, but that's the official reason. Anyway, so the more I looked at your podcast, this is embarrassing is not the word, possibly. We are very striking. It's striking. A lot of like, we don't have guests on because I'm lazy. So kudos to you for that. It's it's myself and my friend Tiff. Uh, Neither of us are historians, but we are anal retentive about things being accurate like don't just cruise wikipedia or something like like one is fine but give me more i want i want more i want to dig a little bit and kind of compare and contrast or go to those sources you know we like spooky stuff too we like supernatural paranormal elements to be in there but then disprove them i guess (laughs) so we've got (laughs) We've got one foot in the world of the paranormal, and they probably hate us because we don't just leave it at, oh, this house was haunted, and isn't that creepy? And people heard voices and footsteps. No, I'm, I'm using words like shared delusions and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And so I'm sure they hate, or, you know, it was the wind. It was definitely the wind. And here's why. I checked the weather report for this day at this hour in 1965, because, again, anal retentive. And it was definitely gale force winds. And so therefore, and I'm sure they hate us. And then, you know, (laughs) on the other end of it, the historical people probably hate us because neither of us have degrees. We didn't. We are not formally educated, but. I love your accent. What is it? (laughs) Oh, okay. So it used to be, if you can imagine, much worse. I was born and raised in Alabama. And uh so, yeah, can just it was not good. And I've lived well and not much better, I guess, by some people's perspective. I've lived in Nashville, Tennessee for over 20 years now. Okay, I I kicked a lot of Alabama. But as you can tell, it's. (laughs) Oh, no, I get you. I'm from Arkansas originally. I've only been in Texas for two years, but the hills come out. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) it. They come out swinging. (laughs) I was talking about on a recent podcast, and do not, by the way, at any point during tonight, let me go too totally far off on a tangent. But (laughs) Southern accents came up by way of how horrible Keanu Reeves' English accent was in Bram Stoker. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then we got on to how it's, it's my pet peeve, and I just, whatever they're paying and it's got to be the same person every time because everybody's making the same mistakes with Southern accents. Mm-hmm. If they would just watch Dolly Parton movies and, and learn from that, or they can pay me and send me their script <laughs> and I'll, I'll read the lines, you know, give them a variety of intonations or whatever. So we're talking about that. And I made a comment and, and I stick by it, but like Reese Witherspoon, for example, it surprised me how bad her Southern accent was in Sweet Home Alabama. And so I think maybe if it's trained out of you, if you try to go back, you lose it. But I feel like for the two of us, nobody's ever going to be able to train us out of it. (laughs) It's true. So what got you into history podcasting besides just liking the, the details? It started. So Tiff, my co-host and I, we're in a like short stories type writing group. I, I always say that because I'm like, nobody's, it's not like Nano Remo, the novel. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, we don't do that. We do like short story, creative writing stuff. And we found out we both liked the TV show Supernatural, RIP. It just ended. <gasps> oh, I love that show. 
so what we were gonna do and we we had mutual friends as well that liked it so then we kind of had a tv watching group you know so anyway we thought about going at it from that angle like going episode by episode because there's like damn 360 <laughs> something like that so yeah. it, it would have been it would have been a limited run podcast but if you did an episode every other week it would last quite a while and then the more we started digging into it i was like tiff like this woman in white stuff there's nothing there like because we wanted truth to be there that's what that's what the idea was is taking it started out as taking urban legends and myths and folklore and pulling the truth out of it like like last week we did for thanksgiving we did americana stuff so there's actually real people behind johnny appleseed and davy crockett for instance Mm -hmm. or we did sea monsters and so i did the sinking of the essex kind of like you know the whale is the monster the leviathan and um but then the more we started looking, a lot of their episodes are such nonsense. And then the monsters will repeat, like there's 85,000 vampire episodes. And so I was like, <laughs> God damn it. You know, we can only talk about, sorry, I'm cursing already. We, oh, can no, only, it's fine. we can only talk about as much as I love vampires. We can only talk about them so many times before we've, you know, that well's going to go dry. So then that's why I was like, let's just look for the weird mm-hmm. or the bizarre history stories so there you go that was it it's it was a failed supernatural podcast (laughs) that is amazing (laughs) i i love supernatural my sister used to write well fan fiction but she was like but like scripts and she did a really cool one about the hanging judge parker from last episode so yeah she was really into that too for a long time oh that's so cool that would be a great job i mean tough but great oh yeah and it was a really good episode i wish she would have like sent it to somebody so they could steal it and put it on the air but they did not (laughs) do we want to transport ourselves to the old west where our biggest problems were other pandemics like cholera and malaria and (laughs) just just yeah wait Dysteria? Is that the word? What am I? Oh my god! You're just... you're combining dysentery and dysentery, yes. which aren't plagues, but, no. <laughs> but they're bad. They're bad. Oh, I just had a mini stroke. I think I just That's forgot okay. words. Dysentery is diarrhea. Listeria oh. is uh, if memory serves what you uh, get when you leave potato salad out in the sun too long. <laughs> I think yes, that's that is. is that listeria? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So still fun time, I guess. If you're Probably no, it wasn't funny for anybody. No, I was like, who would have fun in Old West? Nobody. <laughs> it's about to be at least moderately funny for us. <laughs> so I, th- I think we have pleasing stories for the for the lovelies. Yes, will you kick us off with some weird? This is one of my most favorite stories. I'm not overselling it. So it just may turn up again on my podcast. That is how much I love it. I will absolutely double dip. I'm willing to do it. <laughs> All right, so. I want you all to imagine you're a parent in the early 1900s and the kids come to you and go, hey, can we have a couple nickels? And you say, sure. You fish them out of your pocket and you hand them over and you're like, are y'all going to go down and have some Coca-Cola? Because yes, it was being sold back then. And the kids are all, nah, we're going to stick them in a corpse's mouth. (laughs) Now... Now, this might give you pause, as it should. Yeah, it would. <laughs> but you you managed to reply, why? And the kids answer, well, that's the price of admission if we want to see the outlaw stiff. How, how did we get to this point? And allow me to tell you. So first, <laughs> you heard me. You heard me. So first. I take you to Washington, Maine, January 1st, 1880, where one Elmer McCurdy was born. His mother, Sadie, was 17 and unwed. So Elmer was given to her brother, George, and his wife, Helen, to raise to try to squash some of that, you know, negative stigma that comes along with being a single teenage mom. Yeah. George dies of tuberculosis in 1890 when Elmer's 10. And I don't know how it is over here, but for us, it ain't an episode set in the 1800s if we don't get a mention of the old consumption. So, right. (laughs) Y'all feel me. Sadie and Helen and Elmer, they moved to Bangor, Maine. And at some point, Sadie ponies up that she's not his aunt. She's actually his mother. Don't know what prompted this. I, I can I, I have no idea how this comes up, but and probably you know booze. <laughs> they were liquored. Oh, booze plays a heavy part in this story, too, by the way. Just hit me. 
I actually in high school, and this was not too terribly long ago. I mean, I'm I'm not a spring chicken, but I'm also not, you know, <laughs> a thousand years old. But a friend of ours went through this, found out that her older sister was actually her mother. Oh, I just, wow. I can't imagine. I just can't imagine. So Elmer, as he's getting into his teenage years, he starts acting out and it's described as, quote, unruly and rebellious. Ooh. And part of that was that he started drinking and heavily. I mean, we are talking full court press. He's besties with the bottle. He loved him some whiskey. He goes to live with his grandfather. Things start going well. He gets an apprenticeship as a plumber, and apparently he was pretty decent at it, made good money, but then the economy tanks in 1898, so he wasn't getting as much work. Then he gets laid off completely. Then the grandfather dies in 1900. Then Helen, whom he still considered his mother, also dies in 1900. Oh, that's I mean, unfortunate. Just, just one after the other. Just back to back to back. Elmer is, of course, bereft, and he goes wandering about, picking up work here and there with his plumbing jobs and occasionally in lead mines, God almighty, but, but, quote, he was unable to hold a job due to his alcoholism. He actually ended up being arrested for public intoxication in 1905, so it was bad. Oh, no. Not not, bad for the Old West if you get DUI. That's a DUI. (laughs) (laughs) Drunk while walking. Yeah. Yeah. That year, he leaves Maine, goes to Missouri, but what to do? Well, you join the Army. And in the Army, he is trained in machine gun operation and demolitions, which is exactly the job (laughs) to give to an alcoholic. (laughs) Wow. You definitely want to give him access to the nitroglycerin. (laughs) All right. He serves for about five years, gets honorably discharged. He's now about 25 years old. And he goes to Kansas, where one of his friends from the service lives. And they're just sitting on the porch, drinking whole milk and reading the Bible. They're talking about their hopes and dreams. And they decide to go into business together selling puppies. Oh, no, that's a lie. They decide to do crimes. Okay, I was about to say, yeah. this took an unsuspecting turn. Oh, no, they, they wanted to do crime. And, oh, boy, did they get down to it. Now, according to the St. Joseph Gazette, here's how their first go at it went. They were arrested. Not during the commission of a crime, but before they'd even got there for oh. the pos- for the possession of quote burglary paraphernalia, <laughs> which oh. which included but was not limited to chisels, hacksaws, funnels for said nitroglycerin, gunpowder, and money sacks. Now. I- <laughs> I don't know how one would differentiate between regular sex and those specifically for money, but okay. Oh, bless their heart. They probably like wrote money signs on it <laughs> just so we know which one. That is precious. Like Looney Tunes. <laughs> yeah. That is precious. Oh, and they tell the judge, Elmer and the friend tell the judge, no, 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 no. You have gotten us all kinds of wrong. That's the stuff that we need to work on this foot pedal operated machine gun we've invented. You know, for hunters without hands, I don't, I can't. <laughs> who, who is this product for? Did he go to prison? No. A jury found him not guilty in January of 1911, but he had caught the bug and he wanted to be an outlaw. So March 1911, Elmer's now in Oklahoma. He has made some friends. They would also like to do crime. Elmer goes, you know, I'm pretty handy with nitroglycerin. I was trained by the government. Let's make shit go boom instead of breaking in. It's faster. We're in and out. Kind of a fair point. It's a good pitch, right? And they agree. They pick a target, which is a certain train that Elmer has suggested because he heard that one of the cars was carrying a safe with like $4,000, which is about $110,000 today. They stop the train. Sure enough, there's the safe. Elmer puts the nitro into the seams of the door and he blows the thing to hell. Just destroys it. He burns all of the paper currency. Oh, no. (laughs) They walk away with roughly $450 in silver coins, which is about $12,000 a day. Not what they wanted, right? But not too shabby. Problem is that most of them were melted together and there and there was more, but they couldn't take it because they were fused to the frame of the safe. <laughs> so he's doing great. He's nailing this outlaw thing. 
I mean, just kicking ass. September 1911. Take two. <laughs> Elmer is not discouraged. But this time, let's go for a bank. Elmer scooted over to Kentucky briefly because who knows why. And he's made more friends. And he gives his whole spiel about blowing their way through the door, blah, blah, blah. So they hammer and chisel through this wall of this bank. Then at the vault door, Elmer works his magic and it went bluey all right, clean off the hinges and into the bank lobby where it pretty much destroyed everything. <laughs> but now what about this interior safe? Because yes, turns out there's an interior safe. Well, Elmer again places the nitro, but now it won't ignite. The lookout man, arguably the smartest person in attendance, recognizes this danger and he dips. He's gone, baby, gone, which panics the others. So they take from a teller tray $150 in coins, about four grand a day, and they get out of there. Elmer then makes his way back to Oklahoma where he asks, say, I apologize, anybody who <laughs> missed the first part or skipped it. I had dental surgery lately. I'm wonky <laughs> on certain letters. So... <laughs> Bear with me. And then there's wine. Bear with me. Okay. <laughs> he asks an old friend named Charlie if he can stay at his ranch. And Charlie goes, sure. In the barn. And quote, Elmer stayed in a hay shed on the property for the next few weeks and drank heavily. Well, he oh. don't know any other way. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. I bet he tried to talk the cows into a heist. I mean, probably. This, this is his MO. All right. October 1911. We're still in Oklahoma. Again, third time, number three, big number three, it's got to work. And why not have a go at a train again? This time, Elmer and two other dudes settle on a train that they'd heard was carrying 400000 That is $10,963,705.26 in today's money. Sweet baby Jesus. Yowza. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, what it was, was, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, Big job to pull off, but it's a big score. And what it was, was a royalty payment from the government to the Osage Nation, which is a Midwestern Native American tribe. Oh, no. So there's a definite ethical thing. And I don't know what the law was back then, but I'm pretty sure, you know, it's a felony of some sort because it's government money. So this is this is going to be bad if they screw this up and get caught. Mm -hmm. Now, Kina, how you think this went? I'm going to say it didn't go well. You you don't have faith in, I'm shocked that you don't have faith in, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just, mm, mm. I just have a hunch that it probably didn't go great. Well, first off, they stopped the wrong train. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, he's got a streak going. He's might as well just outdo his failures. <laughs> There's something to be said for consistency. They stop the wrong train. Yes. Uh, they stop a passenger train, matter of fact, and not a cargo train. But hell if they weren't going to make off with something. So they take $46 from the mail clerk, a revolver from somebody, and then somebody else's coat, the train conductor's watch, and from the commissary, not one, but two demijohns of whiskey, which I had to look up. And these are containers that are... Wait for it. Anywhere from three to 10 gallons. The latter looking like, you know, those big water bottles that you flip and they go into a dispenser that are in offices, <laughs> yeah. you know, use the styrofoam cups. Okay. Big. Okay. This is nothing to be trifled with. Every size of this is big is my point. If it starts at three gallons and quote, they missed a jewelry salesman's sample case and $250 that a man threw into a spittoon. <laughs> Of course they did. Of course they did. But they got somebody's coat. What? That was the most random thing I read. Like <laughs> the most random thing I read. Just bless their hearts. They are painfully bad at this. Anyway, Elmer goes back to friend Charlie's ranch a few days later. And I'm like, well, Charlie's born. And he starts in on the whiskey because you best believe that's the cut he was after. I mean, nobody is surprised. What Elmer didn't know is that the authorities had gotten wind that he was involved in this robbery and they put out a $2,000 reward, which is about 54000 today. Oh, wow. I'm, I was blown away by that. And it was, you know, the typical thing, any information that leads to capture, that whole drill. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to bore you with the details, but three sheriffs track him to Charlie's ranch 
And the sheriff's story is that Elmer fired at them repeatedly. They fired back. Then he stopped. And when they go into the barn, they find him dead with an almost empty jug of the whiskey beside him. Now, I do want to note one particular thing, and I will leave y'all to infer what you will. But it is documented that the manner of death was a single gunshot wound to the chest that he, quote, sustained while lying down. Uh-huh. Okay. Big shootout with this guy who's drunk as a skunk, right? Sure. Okay. Look, I don't want to cast aspersions, but come on. Come on now. Yeah. That's just a little sus. Okay. Is this the end of our story? Oh, my stars. No, this this is not the end of Elmer McCurdy. Now, entering into our story is a very kind, very respectful, very ethical undertaker named Joseph <laughs> L. Johnson. And Elmer's body is brought to him in Palhuska, Oklahoma. He does the thing, embalms him, dresses him, gives him a shave, puts him in a coffin, and waits for him to be claimed. Elmer is not claimed. Johnson wants his money. So he does the completely reasonable thing for such a kind, respectful, ethical man. He props Elmer up in a corner of the funeral home and, quote, charged locals a nickel to see what he'd nicknamed the bandit who wouldn't give up. The nickels were dropped into the corpse's open mouth from where they were later retrieved by the entrepreneurial undertaker. Retrieved how? (laughs) An entrepreneurial. Yeah, I don't know. Retrieved how? I don't know. I mean, wouldn't the jaw lock up? I I mean, the the jaw will drop, you know, initially. But at, at, at some point it does lock up. So I don't know. Oh, I don't want to know where that hatches empty (laughs) i don't want to know oh lordy this went on for several years and carnival promoters actually offered to buy elmer off of johnson but he was like hell no this is bringing in the cash not to mention he keeps my kids out of my hair yeah because see the kids would reportedly strap roller skates on elmer and toot toot him around for their friends again oh yeah the classy family real classy i'm sorry what roller skates (laughs) And here were, I had questions. Okay. Were they on Elmer? But like Elmer, Elmer, did or did they strap them somehow to the casket? Either way's bad. Don't misunderstand me. Either way's bad. This like, is bad. We can have Bernie's type situations. Oh, yeah. Oh, Lord. Minus the sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is bad. Fast forward to 1915, two dudes show up at Johnson's and they say, we're Elmer's brothers, Avery and Wayne, out from California. We just heard about where he was. We are so sorry you've had to keep him all this time. Let us pay you and take him off your hands so we can give him a proper burial. And I'm not clear on how this was proven to Johnson's satisfaction, but apparently it was. Or maybe they just paid him a shit ton of money. I I really don't know. But he releases Elmer to them and they go home to California and they bury him. No, they didn't. That's another lie. <laughs> He's lying to you, right? These brothers were actually James and Charles Patterson of the great Patterson Carnival show. And Elmer was put on display, traveling the country with them until 1922 as the outlaw who would never be captured alive. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. All right. So here's what we're going to do now. Let's speed run the rest of Elmer's afterlife adventures. The carnival is sold that year to another traveling show, the Museum of Crime, owned by a Louis Sonny. And amongst others, it featured wax dummies of famous outlaws, such as Jesse James, you know, those type of guys. Mm-hmm. In 1933, Elmer is acquired by a film director, Dwayne Esper, as a promotional tool for his exploitation film titled Narcotic. And the reason, <laughs> there's a reason I pronounce it that way, because the title is styled with an exclamation point. narcotic all right wherein he would display elmer in lobbies of movie theaters as quote dead dope fiend whom esper claimed had killed himself while surrounded by police after he had robbed a drugstore to support his habit oh my god (laughs) dramatic this guy is right important to note Elmer was, for all intents and purposes, a mummy by now. He was desiccated, leathery skin, bony. Y'all can picture what I mean. And that was part of this idiot's cell, that this was what you'd end up like if you stayed on the dope. 
And I, I looked this up because I could not understand why it was called an exploitation film because it sounds like an after school special. Yeah, it does. But apparently it gets graphic. And the opening titles said something like, this is presented in hopes the public will become aware of the struggles of drug addiction. Whatever. It's got two stars on IMDb. I, I, I'm not giving this my endorsement. Just two. A whole two. Moving on. It seems like this Esper guy just leased Elmer or something because he goes back to that museum of crime person, Sonny. Then after Sonny dies in 1949, Elmer goes into storage. Fast forward again to 1964, Sonny's son, Dan, lends Elmer to yet another filmmaker by the name of Dan Friedman, where he makes an appearance in what sounds like an equally stellar film called She Freak. (laughs) Four years later, Dan starts cleaning house. He sells Elmer, along with a bunch more of his father's old wax figures, to the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum, Spoonie Sang, which has there ever been a better name, I ask you. And are y'all exhausted yet? Because we're not done. (laughs) Turns out, Singh had bought all these not for himself, but on behalf of two Canadian men who had a display at Mount Rushmore. And here is where I start to wonder if, as time has gone on, if a good portion of these people just didn't realize that this was a corpse. Because they end up returning Elmer to Singh saying, well, he didn't look lifelike enough to use in their exhibit. And I mean, it was noted that at this point, Elmer had lost the tips of his ears and more than a few fingers and toes. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, no, he didn't look lifelike enough. Just imagine being that person the whole time he thought it was fake. (laughs) I, I cannot fathom. Now, did Singh go on to use Elmer in his wax museum? No, he does not. He sells him to an amusement park out in Long Beach, California called The Pike. And hold that thought. Because I have to tell you a handful of factoids real quick. Okay. In it, just just that you're sprinkled throughout all this adventuring. Okay. In addition to being pretty banged up, a couple other things that happened to Elmer on his travels were as follows. There was a man who pulled off Elmer's arm and chased his secretary around with it to scare her. I know. I'm speechless. It's just like everything you say is worse than the thing before. One of these carnival owners drilled a hole in the back of his skull. Rigged. (laughs) You're talking about Bernie. Get ready. Rigged, Rigged him up with wires. And in a haunted house, he had the wires arranged to where they make him bounce and jiggle around like... Like one of the... You know, what are those things? Those airfield tube things that you see at car dealerships you know what i'm talking about like yeah. and they and they're like constantly <laughs> wobbling and we, that's it that's it exactly <laughs> holy crap and finally this is this one woo, finally that he was coated in phosphorus paint so that he would glow in the dark poor elmer and there there are a litany of assholes in this story and look here's my thing you're a historian so your perspective might be different than mine But as I have said on my podcast, when it comes to certain things, I don't give a shit what time period it was. I couldn't care less about the context or the circumstances. Wrong is wrong. And these people are ghouls. Yeah. They're absolute ghouls. Like in the in the early, early 1800s when crap like this would go down, you know, and they'd watch, they'd go to surgical theaters and they'd, you know, the mummy unwrappings and every, and go to hangings, you know, going even further back, they go to executions. I understand they were bored off their tits. I still think <laughs> that there's something twisted in somebody that they want to see that type. Anyway, well, yeah, I'm losing listeners possibly. Yeah, no, I mean, we all have morbid curiosity. Like today we just listened to like murder podcasts. I can't imagine seeing somebody die or I don't go to the murder. I'm yeah, not- <laughs> like or just goes pop some coins in a corpse. I do genuinely wonder, I really do, how many uh, in this chain of people actually realized this was a corpse and not a wax dummy. Legit, I really do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it by this point looks like the worst wax dummy ever. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of a haunted house type of thing, I really legit, I would look at this and probably think, God almighty, they really made that look like a legit mummy. So uh, some of these people I do understand. I'm not going to be hard on. Okay. Mm-hmm. We are now in the year 1976. There was on television a very popular show at the time called The Six Million Dollar Man. 
They were filming an episode and the storyline necessitated that some scenes be at an amusement park. And guess where? Oh, no. (laughs) Why? It's at the Pike in Long Beach. And so it was that one fine day, the crew was prepping the haunted house slash fun house called Laugh in the Dark. Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. This is is about to be a real laugh. So a props person is sent in to remove this one mannequin that was strung up in a hangman's noose. And he starts to get it down and whoopsie doodles, the arm comes off. And I wonder if it was that same arm, by the way. Oh, no. I wonder if it was loose. I wonder if it was loose from that guy chasing his secretary around. That's my, that's, that's my theory. He starts to get it down. Okay. So arm comes off and I'm sure he's just thinking, great, this is going to get taken out of my paycheck until somebody (laughs) goes, somebody goes, um, that dummy has a bone (laughs) sticking out. And I'm just horrifying. (laughs) Can you imagine? I'm sure the owner of the park just, Crapped his pants because oh, they, call, sure. they called cops and rightly so, rightly so. And Elmer is taken to the LA because you know it's Elmer. Spoiler, yeah. Okay, <laughs> not that you didn't know that. Okay, so Elmer's taken to the LA corner, who now has to help the police determine what happened to this guy. Most importantly, can it be told when he died? Because could this possibly turn into an active murder case? They literally have no clue. Wow. So the coroner not only does his own autopsy, but he also sends off for chemical tests. He obviously sees the gunshot wound and there's no bullet, but our old buddy Johnson back in the day had left something called a gas check, which at first I thought meant the jacket, but it's not. It's this round copper piece that's at the base of non-jacketed bullets. They determined that it was from a type used and in production from 1905 to 1940. Solid lead. Mm-hmm. when he removed Elmer's jaw so that it could be examined for any dental clues, because, you know, types of fillings and such have evolved over time. Like, for example, I have a filling in the back of my mouth and a back tooth that's amalgam. Like if you, it's that kind of blackish silvery stuff for, yeah, the, yeah. for the youngins out there, if you yeah. see in your parents' mouths, perhaps. But now all fillings are kind of opaque white colored mm-hmm. stuff. Okay. So that's, that's what I mean by the dental stuff. You can kind of tell by the dental work and, Probably, I don't know, maybe they could get something from the roots. You never can tell. Mm -hmm. He finds an Elmer's throat, though, once he has the jaw removed. And again, you asked about our entrepreneurial money-making person. How did he manage to get the money out? Well, he didn't get all of it because they found a 1924 penny and ticket stubs from the aforementioned Museum of Crime. Now, remember, that that was in the, like... 1950s or something what did i say whatever i said rewind (laughs) it was in the 60s y'all so up until the 60s the putting of objects into his mouth had not stopped oh i don't like that (laughs) it's the weird it's the most bizarre thing why not just have you a little ticket box or something or put it in his hand i will y'all i will even accept that (laughs) he's look he's He's stiff by that point, just, you know, turn his wrist around and have him put it in his hand. Mm -hmm. And they can get their kind of, (laughs) get their kicks from that. I don't know. Whatever. I'm not suggesting anyone do this. Okay. Another thing that gave them an idea as to the age of the body was that arsenic was present. So, assuming he wasn't poisoned, which was a logical assumption given the gunshot wound, this was a common additive to embalming fluid way back when. And I did a little reading on this because it piqued my curiosity. Best I can tell, it's because arsenic messes with enzymes. So it would slow down their action. Bad in a living person. But in a corpse, it would slow tissue breakdown. And I also read, I know, I had no idea. And I also read that it would keep bacteria from proliferating. So the decomp element of it all, basically what the purpose of formaldehyde is nowadays. But the ticket stub turned out to be the biggest lead. They found out that the owner had been Louis Sonny. They get a hold of his son, Dan. And Dan's the one that goes, oh, yeah, that guy, that's Elmer McCurdy. <laughs> Just as plain as. So on our list of scumbags who knew it was a body, what's that old Danny boy here? Wow. He knew it was a body and knew exactly who it was. Ah. Oh. oh, okay. Just, it, it's infuriating. Like, it's I love this story and horrifying. I hate this story. <laughs> yeah. Just makes me so angry. They see what they can find out about this guy now that they've got a name, hoping to locate records. And as we know, 
turns out there's plenty of documentation on him. And then they bring in a forensic anthropologist when they found pictures of Elmer. I mean, just unreal what they were able to find. This anthropologist has Elmer's head scanned. He superimposes the picture of Elmer over the new images of his skull. So he was able to be confident in the positive identification. And this last bit is very, very sweet. It makes, it makes the news naturally. And quote, several funeral homes called the coroner's office offering to bury McCurdy's body free of charge. But officials, I know, right? But officials decided to wait to see if any living relatives would come forward to claim the body. Spoiler, nobody did. Again, God love him. And Fred Olds, who represented the Indian Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerns, eventually convinced the chief medical examiner, sorry, almost the chief medical officer, no, because <laughs> he wasn't alive, so it would have been the chief medical officer, the chief medical examiner to allow him to bury the body in Oklahoma. All right. When all was said and done, Elmer had been passed around for roughly 60 years in April of 1977, this wonderful group of people took it upon themselves to make sure he got a proper funeral, and it included a procession, and around 300 people showed up for the graveside ceremony. He is, isn't that the, just the best? Yes. He is buried in Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma, beside another outlaw by the name of Bill Doolin, who is an actual legitimate outlaw and had been gunned down there in Guthrie. Because that's our Elmer. He just makes friends wherever he goes. <laughs> in addition to a nice large headstone, they poured multiple feet of concrete into the grave to prevent any potential further thievery. And when reached a comment, Elmer said, please, I can blow that up. <laughs> and that, my new friends, is your story of the not very great outlaw, but close to immortal Elmer McCurdy. Wow, that is fascinating, sad, heartwarming, <laughs> and super weird, all wrapped in one. <laughs> all the emotions. Uh, see, so that's funny. what it, I knew it would fit any theme you had. When I heard outlaw, I was like, whatever, whatever the sub theme is, this is gonna fit it. I just knew. Yes, I'm, I'm fully crediting someone in the chat, but. They brought up a good point. Uh, Stefan, this story has everything. <laughs> Pennies down the throat. A spray painted corpse. <laughs> that is a solid reference, Amber. <laughs> Arsenic. Yeah. No. Nitroglycerin. <laughs> a random person's coat. <laughs> I don't know why I got so stuck on that. Like you're in a train. You start telling everybody, what do you do? Okay. You don't find the safe with the money. So you take your guns, you go into the main car and you say, everybody stop what you're doing. Start taking off jewelry. Yeah. Here's my hat. Start putting your jewelry and your pocket watches and your wallets into my hat. No, they just took some dude's coat. I know. That's what I was envisioning happening when you started talking about it. Cause that's what we see in the movies. I would have not guessed Take off your coat, dude. <laughs> I would have taken the whiskey. I I'm with him on that. I'd have taken the whiskey. That's true. I mean, that was a good score, but just to miss the jewelry guy. What? Like, what <laughs> terrible luck. Is that? And I love that one guy threw like 450. I should have converted it. That's easily over what? Two grand or something. Like, just threw it oh, in a yeah. thing. Just so that they wouldn't get it. But now it's covered in, in cheese. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. God, that was such a good story. <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed. And I'm excited. I'm excited to hear about your outlaw. Maybe he oh. lives. Maybe when he dies, he stays dead. <laughs> so I got random this week and the random word was train. So shameless plug, Patreon members gets to choose the theme and random words. So join Patreon. Okay. So although Jesse James usually gets credit for committing the first train robbery, he did not. So we're going to talk about the first actual train robbery. Oh, in the United States. It was actually the Reno brothers, which I had never heard of. No, at all. I know for being such a, you know, I love firsts in history, you know, and most of the time you usually hear about the first. So I was really pumped that I found a first that I had not heard of. 
Fun fact, this actually happened 10 years before Jesse James swiped $3,000 from the Rock Island Railroad train, which is $65,000 today. So I, too, found the inflation calculator. It is my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to know. I got to know how big of a deal something was. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these numbers get pretty hefty. And I was like, holy shit. Of course, trains have been robbed before the Reno brothers hold up, but previous crimes had been burglaries of stationary trains. So unlike, you know, Elmer getting on a train, being like, give me all your jewelry. So that stuff was happening. But this is the first time where somebody stopped a moving train to rob it. So Uh Aha. Okay. Okay. So it's their contribution to the criminal history, if you will. (laughs) The Western economy booming, trains often carried large amounts of cash and precious precious minerals, so a lot of gold was going around. The wide open spaces of the West also provided train robbers a lot of isolated areas to stop trains, as well as plenty of wild spaces where they could hide from the law. Uh, many bandits who might otherwise be robbing banks or stagecoaches discovered the newly constructed transcontinental and regional railroads to the West made pretty sweet targets. Some criminal gangs like Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch found that robbing trains was so easy that it was their specialty. So this was a very big part of the Wild West. And I'm sure if you were a train conductor, you're just like, fuck, not again. (laughs) Like, no. Anyway, we're going to go back to the Reno brothers. They were the sons of a, quote, illiterate but shrewd farmer, Wilkinson Reno, and a highly educated mother, Julia Ann Reno, which I found incredibly fascinating. That yeah. it was the woman in this scenario that was the highly educated one. So there's a bunch of brothers. Of the brothers, Frank was characterized as courageous, a natural-born leader, but also completely crooked. So, what? Well, what? <laughs> in in stature or in just like, in morals, ethics? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> just to be clear. Okay. The brother John had a bloodthirsty temper and commanded the gang's early operations. And then you had Simeon and William who also joined their older brothers, but they didn't have any fun adjectives. They were just there. (laughs) They were followers. Yeah. (laughs) They were just hanging out. And there were some others. There was one. They were like, he was an outstanding citizen, but he did get arrested a few times. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, and then they had a sister, Laura, who was actually pretty good you know, citizen. She never gotten in trouble. But yeah, lots of siblings, but it's these this main group here that we're going to talk about. Their life of outlawing and crime began with the Civil War. They were traveling around the state. This is so terrible. So they became notorious bounty jumpers. So they would sign up for military service with a federal recruiting officer, get the cash bounty, and when then it came time to actually show up to serve in the military, they would just bounce. But, and then <laughs> they could have gotten their hands on some nitroglycerin, <laughs> perhaps, yeah. perhaps a, a foot pedal machine gun. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so they would just disappear and then they would go find another federal agent looking for volunteers because we didn't have Internet systems to like check if you've already done this. So they racked up a... Uh, large bounty just doing that but Simeon became the only of the brothers to actually go into the military and he was honorably discharged oh at the end of the war the Reno's bought up sections of land bordering the small town of Rockford just north of Seymour soon mysterious fires afflicted the community until most of its inhabitants had vacated so they kind of turn it into a ghost town headquarters of sorts like a hub for horse thieves, safe crackers, gamblers, and counterfeiters. So they've created their own city. So they're doing a little bit better without lying than Elmer. <laughs> yeah, it's like a little pirate cove. I love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And they based their operations in a downtown hotel known as the Raider House, and it was not located too far from the railroad. From there, the brothers orchestrated robberies of the county treasuries in the Midwest. Their gifted counterfeiters added to stolen money with phony bills. So they were stealing stuff and then putting the fake stuff back. So they weren't getting caught for a lot of it. That's smart. Right? That's really smart. They are incredibly, I guess it's the smart mom because they said the dad was pretty dumb. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, What are they? A shrewd farmer. And when you said that, I thought... Not knowing anything about farming, what what does that entail? Like, was he gifted at animal husbandry? Like, he really knew how to how to 
pair off the cows or I don't yeah, know. There wasn't a whole lot on the parents at all on any sources, but I found this genealogical web- website where all these people are citing things people said about these people in the, you know, at the time. And that was uh-huh. the only descriptor. And I was like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> So added to their almost daily income was the constant influx of unsuspecting travelers who decided to stay at the Raider house because they're just passing through and they're like, oh, look, a hotel. But then the Reno gang was very happy to relieve them of all their money and valuables while they stayed there and then beat them up. So can you just imagine the Yelp reviews like stole my shit, got stabbed. (laughs) Oh, Give it zero stars if I could. That's it. (laughs) If I could give this less, then yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And they did get arrested a bunch because they were constantly breaking the law. But they had a lot of money and they were filling a lot of pockets and bribing. So they always got let go. They had a lot of political power in the Seymour area. So again, they're doing pretty good at the outlaw thing. They're just making it rain on these officials. (laughs) And while they're making bank, I'm sure they just kept seeing these trains going by and being like, that's full of gold. We should go after one of those. Gimme, gimme. So they hatched a plan. On the night of October 6, 1866, John and Simeon Reno, along with Frank Sparks, quietly hid themselves aboard the Eastbound Express. As the train was gathering speed, the three masked men silently made their way to the express car, like all ninja-like. And then they overpowered the messenger, like, you know, beat him over the head. And they found a jackpot of $12,000, which today is $196,519. Like, that's so much money. For your first train heist? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. $200,000? Man. So they scooped up their loot and they yanked on the pull cord to stop the train. And as the train started to slow, they jumped off the train into the darkness and started hiding in all the woods. And then the last guy that jumped out hit it again for the all clear. So then it sped up again. Ah, uh, brilliant! That because that was going to be my question. I mean, I figured you were going to get to it, but that was what was sticking out in my head. Like, yes, a moving train, fine, but <laughs> how do you get off? Mm-hmm. And so that is, these people are smart. They are smart. I am so shocked. I've never heard of them. <laughs> They've made like the blueprint of how to rob trains. But don't do that. It's bad. Okay. No, don't. Uh, <laughs> we're not endorsing them. <laughs> not at all. As the train headed east, the express messenger finally woke up and then sent the alarm that they had been robbed. The Adams Express Company quickly quickly sent two agents to Seymour where they were able to find witnesses that said the Renos were on the train. And warrants were sent out for the three, but no one in the law enforcement community would touch the papers. So they were ready to be served, but everybody's like, I'm not doing that. Because they've paid them all off, and they also know they'll shoot him. Like, shoot you in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Like, not today, guy. (laughs) And then you'll die. In desperation, the two agents tricked John and Simeon onto a waiting train where they were subdued and taken to a different town in called Brownstown. Brownston? Brownstown. It looks like Brown Town. They they took the train to Brownstown. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a euphemism for uh, what did we say? Dysentery. <laughs> An indictment hearing was set for February of 1861, and the bond for the three was set at $13,000 which is pretty much what they stole. And they easily posted the bond, the gang did, because they were just rolling in the money. So it was nothing. So they're loose again, and they're ready to fuck some more shit up. Other outlaws heard about this heist and were like, I want to get in on that action. So on September 28, 1867, the world's second train robbery happened by Walker Hammond and Michael Colleran. And it was the same manner as the first. Not wanting competition, though, the Reno, I almost said renal. Oh, my God. The <laughs> Reno brothers <laughs> captured them and stole their loot. After severely beating them, they handed them over to local authorities, but then kept the stolen money as their reward for stopping them. from. <laughs> it's a power move, if I've ever seen one. So the Adams Express Company was pissed. 
They were mad that they got robbed. They're out a lot of money. And they were the largest carrier in the country at the time. So they decided to hire the famous Alan Pinkerton National Detective Agency to stop the unacceptable losses. And soon these dudes were on the case. So in December, John decided to head west for Missouri and the Davies County Treasury. And it was there that he cracked two saves and removed $22,000, which is $361,000 today. Like, the amount of money they are bringing in is insane to me. I am. Um, I'm still thinking about them being the Renal Brothers and, <laughs> and stealing kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't any organ black market back then. No. Listen to me. I'm so silly. Uh, <laughs> what am I thinking? Have you ever seen that Charlie the Unicorn where they steal his kidney? Charlie. No. <laughs> Dumbest YouTube video ever. And we were best friend in college. We just watched that constantly. And even today, I'm like, I don't know why I watched it so much, but it always pops in my head when I, not that I think about stealing kidneys often, no, but when well, it no. does happen, that's well, what no. when it <laughs> When the stray organ theft thought yeah. comes across my mind. Charlie. <laughs> Okay, so he stole the money and they snuck off into some freezing rivers, forests, and fields before hitching a ride on a train back to Indianapolis, where they split up the goods and parted ways. So all the while, this Pinkerton group is hot on their trail. So a week or so after the Davies County robbery, Pinkerton got a tip that John Reno was going to be traveling to the railroad station to wait for a friend. So he quickly jumps on a special train and makes plans to take John back to Missouri. So this dude waits two days to give the signal, and then, boom, six dudes jump off the train, grab John, kicking and screaming, throw him on this new train, and they put him in irons. So he is subdued. He's the first one to go to jail. John was sent back to Missouri, but this time he was captured in a town full of angry townspeople that wanted their money back, and he hadn't paid off any of the law enforcement. So he was screwed. So now John is facing 50 years of hard labor. And that's if he survived the mobs outside the courthouse. So they moved him to the penitentiary pretty quick, um, which he has the best outcome of all these. So, oh, whoa. Yeah, it's going to get dark. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. 50 years of hard labor is the optimal outcome at this point. So John is fully expecting that his brothers are going to come bust him out at any moment. But then after he arrived in Missouri, he received a letter from Frank stating that they had had trouble getting some materials ready and that some of the friends had missed the train and they just weren't coming. So he's probably like, son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Foiled. Hard. So so Frank steps up as the leader and starts robbing some more shit with his brothers and the associates they've picked up along the way including one in Marshville, Indiana, that was worth $96,000. That is a $1,760,000. Holy Moses. That's a lot of money. And, of course, it's a huge amount of money. It made national headlines. And this is when things start to go even more downhill. (laughs) There was a large amount of vigilante justice sentiment going around at this time because he's robbing people of their money and they are pissed. In 1868, a train carrying three members of the Reno gang was stopped by a mob and the men were hanged on the spot. Whoa. Yeah, it was bad. The Terre Haute Weekly Express reported that, quote, ropes were cut into small pieces and taken as mementos. We're talking about how fucked up it is people to watch executions, but imagine wanting to take some of it home with you. And how, and you'll have to help me out with who all this happened to, but would take the skin, like way, way back, way Mm -hmm. back in the day, take the skin, you know, and bind books or make change. My favorite was one I read, made change purses. I was like, who even think, Uh, (laughs) shoes, you know, the top part of shoes. Oh, yeah, it's weird. Like, even Bonnie and Clyde, they, like, clipped off a piece of his ear. What? Like, yeah, when they were dragging the car back into the town, people started reaching in the car and, like, grabbing pieces of their clothes. And somebody started cutting and, like, cut his ear. I just, I've never wanted anything enough. To, like, I don't understand. Yeah. Like, nothing is, no, 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 no. No. 
I just, I don't like that. And people also strip the trees of leaves and bark, the ones that they hang them on and take it home to you. And that's just a new level of ick that I didn't know I could find in a newspaper. So yikes. The Reno brothers themselves were captured later that year and sent to a highly secure prison in New Albany, Indiana. And they were still fearful of another vigilante attack, which is fair because they did bust up in the joint like the Kool-Aid man. And it gets really bad. Nearly 100 vigilantes thought to be part of the Jackson County Vigilance Committee. So they'd formed a committee. They, yeah. <laughs> they, and there was a password and a handshake. And-, yeah. and the Seymour mob. That was also their official name. I just can't imagine being like, yes, put that on your resume. I am a part of the mob and the vigilante committee. So they grabbed the brothers. Oh, and the Scarlet Mask Society. My bad. Can't forget Good that night. one. <laughs> Do they have unions? I mean, this is very. (laughs) Yes. So the three groups with a number of about a hundred of them descend on the prison. They kind of beat up the sheriff and the guards, steal the keys and broke into the brothers cells. They were hauled to the top of the iron stairway at the second story of the jail and hanged. This one's, I don't know. This one just bothered me. That's so scary. I don't know. And The newspapers, the way they wrote about it, they said that Frank and William went really quietly and fast and they didn't fight. But they said that the brother Simon, he it took over 30 minutes for him to die while everybody is watching. Uh, And I'm like, that is just horrifying. Oh, my God. Yeah, it didn't snap his neck. And so it just, yeah. And the thing is, is like, yeah, even if you're in a midst of like a crime of passion, right, and a lot of people do things like, but there's like a time where your logic starts kicking back in. So even if you're like all ramped up in the mob mentality, 30 minutes should be enough time for you to be like, oh shit, what do we just do? Well, and, and or, or somebody needs to shoot him or, yeah. or get a knife, cut him down, slice mm-hmm. his throat, like be humane mm-hmm. if you're going to yeah. do it. Yeah. So after the bodies were cut down, they were displayed in pine coffins in the jail as doors were open for thousands of people to come by and gawk at the remains. What is wrong with humanity? I just, yeah, I'm just, I'm Um, not surprised, but then um, I am surprised. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I just, like, I mean, it's just, I don't know. Like, I, I know, get, like, people wait in line to see, like, you know, RBG, of course, you know, everybody wanted to go in line and see her and thousands of people. But I'm like, that's so much different than to, like, wait in line to gawk and point and be happy that somebody's dead. That just seems so wrong. You took you took the words out of my mouth. I was about to bring up, like, Abraham Lincoln laying in state and going on his train mm-hmm. tour. So, Yeah. That's paying respects. There's very much a different vibe and atmosphere about it. The Chicago newspaper would say that that evening was, quote, one of the most violent nights in the history of our country. And that's post-Civil War. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's wow. And, of course, they did an investigation. I'm using quotes if you're not watching this, Uh, but they didn't find anything. Shockingly, again, Shock, yeah, they, they didn't see anything worth investigating into a lynching. Jesus, fuck. History is just, as Queen's podcast says, history is a bag of dicks. <laughs> and, yes. So the story of this part of the Reno gang ends here. Their legend had already been established at this point, and it sparked organized gangs and even more vigilante groups across the country to pop up. So as for those brothers, their bodies were claimed by their sister, Laura, and she buried them in Seymour. And the nearby area is actually called Hangman's Crossing to this day. And their tombstones are surrounded by a decorative fence and it's marked with a commemorative plaque that says, quote, Frank, William and Simeon Reno, leaders of the infamous Reno gang that committed the world's first train robbery at Seymour, October 6, 1866, hanged by vigilantes in the New Albany Jail, December 12, 1868, and interred here, December 15, 1868. So if you're ever in Seymour, you can see that. But what happened to John? (laughs) 
Oh, John. Oh, so John was at the Missouri State Penitentiary when his brothers were hanged. He only served 10 years of the 50 that he was sentenced to, and he was commuted. So he he has a better outcome. As soon as he was relieved, he was rearrested. Relieved. Released from prison, he was rearrested for his first train robbery in Seymour. But at his trial, he was acquitted. In 1879, he wrote a book called, quote, The Life of John Reno, the World's First Train Robber. So. Well, I mean, I want just him, but okay. But okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> little, little fool yourself there, John, but okay. Yeah. I th- he, he seems like he got that mentality, like, they're dead. They're not going to care. Yeah, right. <laughs> After leaving prison, he lived in Chicago for a while with his niece and her husband. On February 6, 1879, the prosecuting attorney for Jackson County dismissed the remaining of the charges against him. So he's officially a free man. On August 5th, 1880, he married Sarah Ford Reno, the widow of his brother, Frank. Oh. Another example of like, well, he's not getting any better. Let's, let's get married. Crazy. A few years after he wrote his book, John Reno was arrested by federal agents at a saloon he owned in Seymour and was found to be in the possession of a large amount of counterfeit notes. He was sent to Michigan City Prison. Sarah divorced him and took her maiden name of Ford back. But in 1890, <laughs> when he was released from prison, they remarried again in Columbus, <laughs> Indiana. <laughs> oh, it's just a wild ride. But he did die of paralysis at his home on January 31st, 1895, at the age of 56. And... There's like a legend that says that he was losing badly in a card game. And after telling his opponent, quote, I will beat you, damn it, or die doing it. He fell backwards dramatically on the floor, stricken unconscious and paralyzed. But that's been fabricated and that's not what's in the death record. So (laughs) (laughs) thanks for a good story, though. Right. The dramatic exit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And because of these dudes, the way trains moved in the U.S. changed dramatically. So they tried to make it a lot more difficult for train robbers to rob them. So they included massive safes after this, and they had armed guards. Some railroads, such as the Union Pacific, even began adding special boxcars that were designed to carry guards and their horses. And then in the event of attempted robbery, these men could not only protect the train's valuables, but they could quickly mount their horses and then chase down the bandits. So hope, before that, they're all on feet. I hope they slow the train down a little bit. The I know, horse, poor horses. <laughs> that horse is going to go end over end. Yes. So by the late 19th century, early 20th century, train robbing was a whole lot more difficult and a whole lot more dangerous. And you can thank the Reno brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Reno. Sorry, guys. <laughs> oh, so, yes, the first train robbery. Much better criminals than Elmer. Oh, well, who's not? (laughs) But a wildly depressing ending for most of them. But no, but I never knew that. I never knew. I'd never heard of them. Me either. I've always, I guess, assumed Jesse James was the first one. So I'm glad I accidentally stumbled on this. But thank you so much for joining me. This has been a delight and a blast. And I'm just so excited. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. You can come back anytime. So tell everybody how they can find you. Okay. We are, well, whatever podcast platform, most all I would think we're on it. You totally made that up as (laughs) in, you know, it's, it's stories so weird. You think that someone must've totally made them up, but they're true. And uh, at Tumblr, that's the blog. And that's where we just stash all the show notes and stuff like that. So that's all one word. You totally made that up. Tumblr.com. On Instagram, same drill. You totally made that up. And then on Twitter, they limit the characters. So it's YTMTU podcast on Twitter. That's it, though. Limits. That's where we are. Oh, I know. I hate character limits in general, just in life. I don't like it. Yeah. All right. Well, I will talk to you later and have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. I want to thank Nash again from the You Totally Made That Up podcast. I had such an amazing time. This was such a great episode, and I loved hearing about Elmer and also just her enthusiasm as she talked about Elmer. It was a good time. 
If you would like to watch these episodes live and comment along with us and chat with us, join Patreon. The tiers are 2 to $20 and you get a lot of benefits with each one. And that is patreon.com slash historical AF pod. If you would like to submit a story for the December listener story, that is historical AF pod at gmail.com. And if you would like to buy some merch, maybe for some Christmas presents, that is shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical AF pod. And I also have some merch on my Etsy shop that I'm making myself. And that is Etsy.com slash shop slash Keenest Creations. And that's Creations with a K because I had this name before Kardashians. So don't judge me. (laughs) I hope everybody's having a great week and we'll see you next time with Oceans Part 1. Okay, bye!